Welcome to the Sense Fitness Podcast. I am Jim Ghazali, uh, joined this evening by a, a double feature, R.J. Bergers, an associate professor at Seton Hall University in my home state of New Jersey, and Angelo Gingerelli, strength and conditioning, also at, at Seton Hall. So, gentlemen, uh, thank you very much for, for joining me. Uh, what we'll dive into tonight is strength training, resistance training for endurance athletes, and, and both of you uh, co-authored uh, an upcoming book, Finish Strong Resistance Training for Endurance Athletes, which we'll dive into. So, gentlemen, thank you very much. Uh, RJ, let's start with you. Uh, just introduce yourself, give us a little bit of background on, on you, and, and then we'll go from there. Sure. Thanks for having us, Jim. Um, so I'm RJ Bergers. Uh, I've been a, an associate professor at Seton Hall University since 2011. Uh, I teach in the Master of Science in Athletic Training program. So uh, this type of information is near and dear to my heart. I'm close to it every day uh, teaching my students. Um, so to get to this point, uh, multiple degrees in in things related to uh, strength training. So uh, I got a, a bachelor's in athletic training, uh, a master's degree in uh, human performance exercise science, and a PhD in uh, human movement um, science. So biomechanics. And, um, you know, so that's, that's where I have, you know, my knowledge base, where my knowledge base comes from. But then my passion for uh, endurance sports and triathlon uh, comes from, um, you know, I did my first triathlon in, in 2009 and just caught the bug. And from there has just gone on, you know, and, and done plenty of different other endurance sports aside from triathlon. Uh, I did a mountain bike race this past year, um, constantly trying new things. Uh, I think next year on my docket will will be an Otillo race. Um, so just trying to branch out and, and enjoy it. So all things uh, endurance, um, running, cycling, and and swimming all the time. So uh, this was a it was a perfect avenue uh, with my background uh, and then with Angelo's background to get together and and write this book. Awesome. Angelo, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, so I'm Angelo Gingerelli. I've been a strength and conditioning coach at Seton Hall since 2005. So coming up on just about 17 full years there. Uh, like most strength and conditioning coaches, my background was more on the power side of things. I was a competitive power lifter for a long time, competitive Olympic weightlifter for a little while. And then right about when RJ got started as a professor at Seton Hall, I ran my first marathon. Now let's just kind of hit it off and we're running together, training together, and we're lifting together a lot of days. And it just kind of hit me that a lot of there's a lot of disconnect between the weight room and the endurance sports. We were two really good guys that were bridging the gap ourselves in our training, want to share this information with everybody else. So I always say for the first, you know, 10 years of my strength and conditioning career, I was a good strength coach, but I, got, I became a much better strength coach when I jumped in those endurance sports and got better with firsthand information of training our cross-country kids, our distance swimmers. The sports, even for you know, being totally honest, there's a little bit of disconnect with me and those sports because I hadn't really participated in them earlier in my life. And then once I got in, 
um, it kind of seemed like a, like a perfect fit that I'm able to work with our athletes and introduce them to these strength and conditioning movements. I think it'd be good to make this available to a much larger audience than just seeing all athletics. And that's kind of where the idea for the book came with Professor Borgers. Um, Education-wise, I have a, ma- a bachelor's in exercise science, a master's in education of health promotions, and an MBA in sports science. So educationally, we, we cover a lot of different our backgrounds are a little bit different, a little bit similar, but him kind of to make it very simple, him coming to the subject matter from the training room, me coming to it from the weight room and us both loving to train and compete. I think we're a pretty good, good pair of authors to write this book. Awesome. Yeah. I'm excited to, to dive into it. Uh, I know I, I have my copy on the way to me, uh, probably in the next couple of days, couple of weeks. So, uh, well, I'll get a, a firsthand account from, from both of you here. So, uh, the first thing that sticks out to me is is the title, uh, Finish Strong. You know, I'll come at this from the triathlete end. Um, you know, it's the that sort of like death march, right, at the end of a, a half Ironman or, or an Ironman, as, as they say. Um, you know, people are just walking for seemingly hours. Um, and if you can run that entire marathon at the end of, of an Ironman, there's got to be some muscular strength that you've developed uh, in one way or another. So kind of explain where the idea to, to write this book and, and the information that, that you lay out around the importance of, of strength training. Yeah, so I think we pretty much... Um, finally now are preaching what we practice. Let's put it that way. So we've been practicing it this way for as long as we can both remember. Uh, We're both uh, gym rats and probably strength train minimally four days a week. And then if we're doing that, and then that's on top of whatever the, um, you know, triathlon training or in Angelo's case, marathon training that we happen to be doing, Um, so now what we basically wanted to do is tell everybody we've had success this way and we've had success in a, not getting injured in B, um, actually having some of our better performances, um, later in life as we've been continuing to, uh, strength training. And, you know, we're looking at this from a career longevity standpoint. Uh, we believe that if we continue, if we continue to train this way, um, we should be able to enjoy, enjoy a a nice long career, uh, in endurance sports. I think another aspect of where we came out of from, we kind of just started off as a joke between me and RJ, but it ended up being a kind of a theme through the book that if you look at the starting line of almost any race, everybody looks solid, right? First couple of miles, everybody's good running mechanics, good posture, killing it, right? Take that camera to the finish line and it gets ugly a lot of times, right? And of course, for me and him, as much as anybody else, we've done a pretty good job at staving this off. But that finish line, we love to see you know, the triumph of the spirit, somebody finish an Ironman or a marathon. But a lot of times, those running mechanics, that posture, it's, it's not looking the way it did 20 miles ago, right? And what we kind of found out was if we can stay stronger and maintain better posture and maintain good running mechanics, we're going to be more successful and less successful susceptible to injury so why not try to introduce that early on in your training and then extend your career hopefully in our case decades so it sounds like it's more and you know correct me if i'm wrong it it sounds like it's more from um 
like a, a skeletal standpoint in in the the posture, you know, more so than than trying to develop, you know, like hulking muscles. One hundred percent. Yeah. And so, um, gosh, I feel like I'm teaching uh, or, or, or commenting on things that I that I teach with my students all the time. Posture is incredibly important. It's it's just the foundation of you know what you're going to do if you're if you're running with poor posture if you're cycling with poor posture um things are going to start to break down so having having stronger muscles uh having stronger postural muscles um that will hold you in the correct positions and have proper alignment is incredibly important for staying healthy and then also you know being successful so one of the the main things that triathletes are are up against right is is training for for three sports um to do you know really any any length of distance in a triathlon you know you've you've got to do something every day for for the most part um so swimming biking running where where does the the strength piece come in it's often the the first thing that that goes, if you're you're looking at a, a weekly workout routine, uh, you know, you're pressed for time. The strength workout is is going to be the the first thing that gets dumped. Uh, where where do you recommend people kind of incorporate that, and and why should that be you know a, a priority week after week? Uh, one thing we identified pretty early on, and this is pretty much true from high school cross country runners to world class triathletes. Endurance athletes by nature have way too much fatigue and way too little time, right? Because just like you said, if you're going to train for three disciplines, that could be a full-time job by itself. And now we're going to try to add in mobility sessions, strength sessions, whatever else might be on top of that. Plus a life, I realize that the overall majority of people are not professional athletes and they have a job, school, family, whatever it might be. So what we kind of identified early on was the number one principle I think we, we talk about is planning throughout the year to have your strength sessions not interfere with your distance sessions, right? So we understand your your long runs, your long swims, your long bike rides, or your, we're going to call them your games, right? Those are things you got to be up for, got to be prepared for on a weekly basis, right? So for example, we're doing a long running on a Saturday, on the Monday and Wednesday or Thursday of that week, and we get some good strength work in, get our good mobility work in, and show up ready for a long run every Saturday in our training session. I think the worst thing you see is a lot of endurance athletes go into a weight room kind of kind of blind. They don't know what to do. I haven't been introduced to it. They train, they get sore, their endurance work suffers, and it turns them off to it, right? So we're very clear that there's a way to put this together based on the time of the year and where you are in your training that will allow you to maintain or increase your strength and keep crushing those endurance workouts. What you all agree is that if you're an endurance athlete, those are the most important, that's the most important component of your training, right? So what we did throughout the book is we broke the year down into four main cycles, right? You have your, your off-season, even though we know it's not an off-season, but we went ahead and called it that kind of an active recovery period. Uh, you're, build, you're building a base, your peak mileage, and then your taper, and talk about a couple different ways you can, can plug in your strength training sessions based on your endurance training program and your real life. So I think you can make it work. Um, you know, the cliche is if something's important to you, you'll make time for it. If something's not important to you, you'll make an excuse. We kind of tacked it on. We're going to give you a whole bunch of ways to make time and, and manage your fatigue to make this work. And now it's your job not to make an excuse. So in an, in an ideal world, because you hear a bunch of different things, right? Oh, you only need 
20 minutes two days a week or 30 minutes three days a week an hour once a week what did what did you guys find over the course of the book um, makes the most sense for the vast majority of of endurance athletes yeah so one of the things that we wanted to do is you know give this book a little bit of you know science behind it give it some teeth and you know we looked through you know the uh uh there was the acsm principles right the acsm yeah i was trying to think about who who that was but so we we did we we found through acsm there's a recommendation that uh in order for a muscle to get stronger it needs to be worked you know minimally two days a week two to four days a week seems to be appropriate so our guideline is pretty much do it at least twice much better if you're going to be able to get it you know four times a week uh and then on top of that i would even recommend one day of doing you know yoga so that you're getting you know some some serious um a lot more mobility work um all of our sessions will have uh, they start out with mobility work um because that's going to be uh, a critical important key when uh to trying to get rid of some of the postural syndromes that some people are having uh, due to the repetitive training um, for whether it's swimming, biking, or running, and what ends up happening um, as a result of that. So we've got the, uh, we've got the, in our workouts, we're recommending two to four days a week. Um, And like I said, we'll have sessions that we'll do, that we'll start with mobility work. And the other thing that's really important about the way that we structured any of our workouts was that they were going to be full body workouts. There's no way that a triathlete um, or, or you know somebody that runs can really structure it to the point where it's going to where it's going to be. I'm going to do a leg day, and then the next day I'm going to follow it up with uh, you know upper body, because here's what's going to happen: is you'll you'll start training for your sport something's going to come up in life and then you're, you're going to start to miss and you're not going to be able to get those minimum of two, uh, of two days in. So by us doing these full body workouts, um, that was one way to, to, you know, work around that. What sort of exercises are, are in the, these routines? Let, let's start with the mobility piece. Um, is that just kind of, a a warm-up base sort of thing to kind of wake up the the central nervous system and, and kind of get you primed what's the the methodology behind that portion of the uh workout routine oh so Angie, i thought you were going to grab that um i'm happy to happy to roll with this one um so the idea was it's a very targeted approach so our book not only has, it's not written for solely for triathletes. You know, we, we wanted this to be a book that could be accessible for somebody that only runs, somebody that only cycles, somebody that only swims, or somebody that's doing it all. Um, and so what we did was we found out, you know, what, the tar- what are the targeted issues that these people have. For instance, if I'm a swimmer, swimmers are notorious for getting a forward shoulder. So we've got to do some kind of mobility work that's going to uh, address that. If I'm uh, if I'm a runner, notorious for having uh, a lack of dorsiflexion, we need to work on something like that. 
having some hip restrictions, need to do some kind of work with that. So there's, there's all of these um, targeted exercises. It's not just a general, hey, loosen up. Um, these are these are the exercises that are going to uh, prevent you from having these postural syndromes from repetitively, you know, performing in your sport. So that was really important to us uh, was that these were, you know, specific exercises that targeted the right muscles or targeted uh, trying to mobilize uh, an area um, within the body. So. Certainly there's a little bit of foam rolling to address and just get some of the, uh, the muscles a little bit loose um, as a start to the mobility section. But then there are uh, specific mobility exercises to target those main problem areas. And then on the strength side of things, we took a very similar approach. We identified six exercises that we call our foundation exercises that we think all endurance athletes can get something out of doing on a weekly basis, right? And then what we did, we have a couple top 10 lists of our top 10 exercises for your swimmers, your cyclists, your runners, and your triathletes. And then we have a bunch of templates where you can, can kind of, we give you our ideal workouts, but you can kind of plug and play based on where you are in your periodization and where you are throughout the year. So on the strength and distancing side of thing, the argument for and against sports specificity rages on decade for decades at this point, right? <laughs> and what I kind of come to is someone who in my day job trains 13 sports at Seton Hall and from that range from baseball, which is extremely anaerobic and explosive to cross country, which is the complete opposite side of the spectrum. And I deal with athletes outside of the college and I play all different sports. Um, I personally think, about 75 to 80% of what you do in a weight room is good for everybody, right? I think squats, I think lunges, I think push-ups, pull-ups, you really can't go wrong with those foundation exercises. But that last 20 to 25% is where we can really specialize and make an impact on your desired sport. So we're at, and obviously, we're, uh, you know, a baseball player is not going to squat the same sets, reps, and resistance as a cross-country person or distance swim we're gonna make some changes but i think what we put together was about three quarters of stuff that we feel is good for all of the endurance athletes and about 25 percent of stuff that's specific to the individual disciplines what are those six foundation exercises uh sure so we're gonna go with the squat the lunge the hip hinge uh, the push-up, the pull-up, and the hip bridge. With the idea that if we're going to, you know, use the cliche of building a house, that's going to be our foundation, and then we're going to build our first, second, third floor on top of that. Just from being in the, in the strength game for so long, I kind of identified that if you can't do those six exercises well, everything else is going to be a struggle for you, right? So we're going to start off with a simple bodyweight squat, bodyweight lunge, bodyweight push-up, and then the book has progressions also, there, and has regressions as well. If you, you know, a lot of people might not be able to do a push-up or pull-up their first time in the gym. That's fine. That's your starting point. How do we regress that movement to where you can do it on day one? Is it using a band on your pull-ups? Is it using a bench on your push-ups, whatever it might be? And how do we progress as we get stronger to progressively harder, more difficult, more physically taxing exercises and movements? I use the pull-up as my own sort of uh, <laughs> fitness gauge. Uh, I don't do them often. I do. I try to do one set of ten a month, and if I can get ten, then uh, I move on to the. You know, I come back next month. Uh, if I come up short, right. then then I gotta you know, try and build a little bit of, of additional strength over the next four weeks, and then try it again. Um, so, all right. So you start with the simple body weight exercises, and then you know, work, work your way up. So kind of take me through that, um, sort of progression throughout 
the training cycle? Uh, is the goal to go from a bodyweight squat to a you know kettlebell goblet squat to uh, a, a back squat on a loaded bar and continue to add weight? Uh, am I missing any steps in there? What's the the typical progression that you know would be you know an ideal scenario? I, I think you were pretty close. And the squat progression, that's pretty much what we have and identified it that way. And then we're in a couple steps around. We introduced some front squats, some overhead squats to work on balance and posture, um, some different variations that we can use with the idea that if we start lifting in our quote-unquote off-season, our goal is to get to, like you said, some weighted barbell back squats, some weighted barbell lunges, uh, some bench press reps, hopefully some pull-ups or some heavier lat pull-downs. And then you have the capability with what's in the book to regress that when your miles really start to ramp up, right? So what I like to say is a lot of college strength coaches make the mistake of telling the cross-country team, all right, everybody's doing five sets of 10 squats, but they just got back from a 10-mile hilly run, and that strength and conditioning coach has never been on a 10-mile hilly run, right? So we're kind of looking at it as if the goal is, you know, heavier back squats in the offseason, when we get to your heavy, you know, build, your heavier mileage time of the year, maybe that's a kettlebell goblet squat. Maybe it's an overhead squat with a dowel trying to get your muscles moving your legs moving and feeling good with full knowledge that the next day you're going out to run again or bike again or swim again so we're kind of giving you some some plug and play stuff where we're going to constantly make progression with the understanding that when that mileage really starts to ramp up and we're tapering for a big event we might have to regress some of those movements to let your body recover and be ready for those distance training sessions or an event depending on what time of year it is is it yeah so so let me just uh, finish on that. The, so the way that the, the templates are, um, they're pretty much an idea, right? And so we wanted to expose people to the different types of exercises that, that we had. But we've given them the, knowledge, the, the base knowledge that, you know, I know that if I'm doing squat and perhaps it's barbell squat, but I'm not feeling too great, I should be able to go ahead and, you know, regress it down to goblet squat or something like that. So we're giving people that opportunity. The way that we actually have some of the, uh, some of the templates written, for instance, the, uh, the tape during the taper period, those are definitely going to be more along your, your easier, your easier body weight uh, exercises and things like that. We also have a section for uh, if somebody's, you know, traveling, um, or if they, or if they only have ex accessibility to their home gym for a particular day, those are going to be a little bit more easier workouts with, you know, more body weight type, um, uh, exercises. Keeping with that theme of the, the 10 mile hilly run and coming back and, and doing squats in your, your strength session. So, um, would, would that be, let's say you're, you're feeling, you know, pretty good, right? Your, your fitness is high. Your, your fatigue isn't, you know, super, super high. Um, would it just, would you recommend just going with the lighter weight at, you know, theoretically in that period of your, um, your training cycle, the, the run training cycle, or would it be, still advantageous if you felt like you could do, you know, a, a loaded bar with a little bit more weight than the goblet squat. Um, is that advantageous or is that kind of working against you at that particular moment you know, in a, in a general sense? 
I, I think in a general sense, it really depends on the athlete, right? There's, there's guys and girls that go on that long run, come back, they feel great, they could crush it in the weight room that day, bounce back and do whatever they got to do the next day at a high level, right? There's some people that co come back from a 10-mile run and they're just wiped out and have to cut some sets out, regret, regress some movements. Um, I always say the worst thing you could do is not go to the gym that day. Go in and get something done, right? I think a lot of that comes from and, and the decisions you make once you get in the gym – come to knowing your own body a little bit, right? So I always say, in the beginning of strength training, err on the side of being conservative. And then once you get to learn how your body feels and responds to training, then you can make that decision for yourself, right? Until you've done a bunch of barbell back squats, you don't know how you feel the next day. But once you've done it every Monday for three months and you know what Tuesday morning feels like, you're in a much better spot to make that decision. And it's part of when we periodize the year out for you, we kind of recommend, if possible, to start this in your off season when there's very little at stake, no big events on the horizon, and you're just kind of, kind of experimenting. So then when you get to that base building, peak mileage, and taper period of the year and you got your big events planned, you kind of know what you're dealing with and can make good decisions where that you just, you can't make those decisions for your body until you've kind of been through a couple, couple weeks or months of training, in my opinion. Sure. Yeah. One of the things that Angela and I were talking about throughout this past, this past race season and something that didn't even really make it into the book was the idea of a recovery lift. And, uh, you know, I, I was telling him, there's nothing that I like better af after a race um, the following day I recover so much faster if I get a light lift in. It is not, you know, I'm certainly not putting up heavy weights or anything like that, but I'm doing some of these more, uh, some of the more regressed um, exercises and, I, and it really puts your body through through the range of motion that it's used to. Um, it gets those muscles to, to, um, to fire in the firing pattern that they're supposed to. So it, it's amazing, at least for me, um, as I've aged, it's definitely been an important thing uh, for me to do. With these six foundation exercises, is the the prescription your traditional sets rest rest period or sets reps rest period, or is it uh, more like a circuit based style of of training as you go through these these main six exercises? So. It Go ahead, Ange. Uh, sorry to cut you off, RJ. Uh, we kind of put it together. I guess you call mini circuits or supersets based on the time of the year. So if we're doing it, might be a push-pull superset. It might be a push-pull core superset. But the idea is that, like we said before, people are pressed for time. We fully understand that. So and we, we really, there, there are no point that we recommend in the lift so much weight that we need three to four minutes of full recovery laid out on a bench waiting to squat again, right? That That's really not what an endurance athlete should be doing in the gym anyway. So maybe we're doing you know, squats superset it with some pull-ups or push-ups superset it with an RDL or something like that with the idea we're moving opposing muscle groups. One muscle group is recovering while the other one's working and you're making the most of your time in the gym because we're realizing the overwhelming majority of people that are going to attempt this program are not professionalized for unlimited time to be in the gym. So we're going to make it efficient and metabolically efficient and time efficient where your body's getting the most bang for its buck to use a cliche. You know, one of the things I'm always amazed at is how much rest people take at the gym and how they have all that time because, and they all, they always look at me as if I'm crazy because I'm just going from one thing to the next because everything's supersetted. Um, and I, I think it baffles them, but 
to me, it baffles me that they have all this time to waste. I, I just don't know where they get it from. Um, but the way that we've set this up was for the time crunched athlete like myself, like Angelo, so that we can get it done. Uh, we can actually, you know, um, yeah, pretty much just get get it done in a quick in a quick and reasonable period of time. The other exercises after after these these six main ones that you know you mentioned earlier, you know, specific set of exercises for the swimmers, the runners, the cyclists, um, are they also based around the the compound lifts, or are they? predominantly accessory work? How, how would you kind of classify those and, and give us some examples of each one? Great. It's, a, it's a really a little bit of both as far as compound versus single joint lifts. And we kind of base that on what RJ based the mobility stuff on, which is if you deal with, let's say, for example, uh, if you're a cyclist, your upper body strength for steering and controlling the bike might be a little more important than it are if you're a runner or a swimmer, right? Or if you're a swimmer, we see a, a a large amount of swimmers with poor posture, shoulder girdle pulled forward. Something like a rear delt raise might be one of the top 10 exercises for a swimmer to start combating that early on, right? Um, or, for, or for example, a squat or a lunge is great for everybody. A step up on a single leg movement with a reasonably high box is probably a little closer and more specific to runners than it would be for swimmers who are not ever moving their knees in that range of motion if they have a good swim stroke, right? So, and then we, we kind of are pretty open that these actually, there's no reason why a swimmer can't get something out of doing something from the runner list. But our attitude is again, if you're time crunched and you only got time to plug in, let's say two or three exercises, pick them from your specific top 10 list. And then those are the ones that are going to be the most efficient at getting you stronger for what you're trying to do. And then if other times you're open up, you got some more time, you could pull them from other lists and try some different stuff. With the, the goal not being to pack on a, a ton of muscle um is there what's what's the the sort of progression and periodized approach to building that that strength then is it in the the technique do you recommend increasing the weight that you're that you're lifting throughout the year um how do we do that in a way that you know doesn't have us packing on a, a ton of muscle weight unless that's right, what yeah. you guys think we should be doing uh, <laughs> no i mean we don't need the incredible hulk at the starting line of an iron man right uh, keep the superheroes separate but um <laughs> what i always say is that it, i think a couple there's a couple misunderstandings someone who spent their life in the weight room to get big and strong and pack on a ton of muscle mass unless you have incredible genetics to do that which let's be clear honest most people that gravitate towards the endurance sports do not have that body type and do not have those genetics um you have to dedicate your life to that kind of training right it's in the gym constantly it's sleeping eight to ten hours a night it's perfect nutrition perfect hydration per it's a perfect storm to get that big jack bodybuilder type physique right so i think you kind of rest your fears aside that that's not going to happen with this kind of training on top of that i think we should be progressing as much as possible around our endurance training. So what I always say is if we're doing a set of 10, reps 7 through 10 should be pretty challenging. If you're crushing 10 reps, it's time to move up the dumbbell rack or the weight stack or put more plates on the bar or whatever it might be. That being said, I normally recommend people during their quote-unquote off-season when they're doing their heavy lifting, really push those numbers, really get some weight on the bar, 
really get good at your foundation lifts and move some weight around, right? With the idea that as your mileage starts increasing during that base building period, it's going to be much harder to do that and to be ready for those endurances. You probably have to back off a little bit. So I think one thing we've got to do is kind of have the right mentality going in every day. And it's going to be, if it's during that, that off season, that strength building, we got to push the, push the weight every time we're in there. If we're doing a ton of mileage, whether it's on the bike, the swim or the, or the run, now we might need to psychologically say, I'm okay only lifting 80% of what I did three months ago, but I'm making up for it on the bike, on the track, in the pool, whatever it might be. So I think it's got a little bit about being a real, there's definitely an element you have to push yourself. Progressive overload principle says we have to do bigger and better things if we want to get bigger and better. But some days and sometimes a year, that might be on the endurance side of things. And some day more times a year, there might be more in the gym. I think it's, again, you got to know yourself and understand how the body responds to different stimuluses to decide when you're going to put another plate on the bar and when you're going to back down because you have another thing you have to attend to that day on the endurance side of things. I, I glanced at a study a couple of weeks ago that suggested, uh, and I'm just kind of paraphrasing here, uh, suggested that once you once you build that strength and that muscle um, to maintain it takes very, very little. So it sounds like what you're saying is uh, put that time and effort in in your offseason, lift as heavy as you can, get as strong as you can there, and you know, you'll, you'll see probably the largest gains in that period. And then maybe some marginal gains with the mobility and and lighter strength work, um, in conjunction with your, your traditional, um, swimming, biking, running, training overall. Yeah. And that's, that's something that Angela has been doing with all of his student athletes, forever so you know the off season uh when they're not in when they're not having competitions is really the time to hit hit it hard in the weight room and then once they are in the competition then it's it's a maintenance phase and the same thing goes uh with any endurance athlete so hit it hard in the off season and then try to maintain what you've got um and it's really comes it really comes down to maintain what you got and keep, keep the, uh, maintain the motor program because it's when you start to have the faulty motor program, that's when people's, uh, alignment starts to shift. And then that's when they start to get some of the overuse and chronic injuries. So that's really, you know, our take on it. Just real quick on maintaining that motor program. What I see a lot at the, at the college level and definitely high school level is coaches will start a quote unquote taper by stop sending the kids to the weight room. Right. So now we, we've been lifting, we've been training, we've been doing these movements. And now we're going to take, you know, maybe four weeks at the end of the season, not train at all, then give them a couple of weeks off at the end. And now two months later, we're back in the weight room, back to square one. Our goal is to not ever get back to square one, right? If we make progress, we want to keep making progress. Um, now that progress as far as strength might get a little bit slower during our peak mileage and our tapers and our race season. But when we get done with that race season, like RJ said earlier, the next day, maybe the day after that, we're back in the weight room and we're kind of picking up where we left off instead of having to retrain our body how to squat, how to lunge, how to push, how to pull again. Because what I see at the college level a lot is if you don't go home and work in that summer, you're just going back to square one four years in a row. And if you do that every year how do you how do you ever make progress to square two three and four so our goal is try to give people the tools to do well in races crush the endurance stuff but keep making that progress in the weight room and not go back to square one every time they're not training for a specific event 
that makes total sense. So you see the, you know, like the um, endurance sports magazine websites. It's like top strength moves for runners, top strength moves for triathletes. Um, you know, if you're not doing these strength moves as a swimmer, you suck, basically. It's, it sounds like you guys are saying, hey, there's these six foundational exercises that we believe in and that have been proven to help all endurance athletes no matter what sport and then it sounds like two those top 10 lists for each one is um to kind of correct some imbalances that those particular sports tend to develop if we don't kind of work against them and and keep that um you know our our skeleton in in good order yeah, I'd say I'd say that's a correct uh, correct synopsis. Um, you know, the foundation exercises are the key. That's part of the reason why each of the all of the templates have you know are made up of seventy five percent of the foundation exercises. So if somebody's doing those exercises on a regular basis, they'll their body's going to have you know at least the the baseline strength uh, that they should have. The uh, the top ten stuff is you know the top 10 exercises for each discipline it's pretty much like the icing on the cake so it's it's just it should they are targeted exercises it should make you that much better in your sport in terms of performance and it also also should keep you aligned um one thing that i always preach to my students there's a hundred right ways to do stuff you know and with when it comes to strength training it's no different. There's so many right ways to do it. And it, 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 it is kind of funny when you have to have these top 10 lists or as you're, as you're mentioning, and if you're not doing these particular exercises, you're going to fail. That's, that's somebody's opinion. Our top 10, it's our opinion. Um, there's, there's certainly other exercises that you could be plugging in there. Uh, it's just comes from our experience that we sit there and say, you know what, based on, you know, if you're doing the foundationals plus this, that should set you up for success. If if we really could, our list would probably be the top 50 of for, <laughs> for each discipline. But eventually, you got to cut it off somewhere. I mean, I think our I think our uh, editor was constantly after us saying, "Guys, you're giving us too much, too much." <laughs> you know, he's like, "There's got to be an end point." And so, yeah, we we did end up kind of you know coming up with that that top 10 list top 10 also is just one of those things that people can kind of wrap their head around too. I think that's part of the reason why those lists kind of come out. Yeah, for sure. So the, the gains somebody could, could expect, right. Assume the, the run swim cycling training, you know, largely stays the same year over year, right. Uh, You incorporate, a strength training routine are, in your opinion, or through your research, are, are the gains marginal? Are they substantial? I think from someone who deals with a lot of untrained people, I'm, I'm a lot of athletes' first experience in the weight room. And I think what we can all agree on is when you first introduce resistance training to your life, 
the gains in the beginning are really great, right? You, you, you get stronger right away. You get neurologically better at doing the movements. And if you stick to it the first couple of months, you see really great gains, right? Like anything else, the better you get at it, the more you do it. The gains aren't going to come as fast and furious as they did when it was brand new to you. But I think you could still keep seeing gains. And we've kind of seen, as, as we're not really old guys, but older guys in the game in our 40s, um, endurance sports are great because one of the things you can get better at as you get into middle age, right? You're not going to be a better Olympic weightlifter at 30 than you were at 20, but you might be a better marathoner at 40 than you were at 25. And I think the resistance training for a lot of people is that missing link. Can we stay strong, have good posture, stay mobile, have good running mechanics? And then as we have established those things, continue to develop our cardiovascular system to be super efficient and then get better as we go on. So I think in the beginning, it's going to be a, a lot of improvement right away, right? And as your body gets bigger, stronger, gets closer to maybe its genetic potential for strength and size, the gains won't be as big in a shorter period of time, but over the long haul, the gains will be there. You just got to be committed and put the time in the same way you have to be committed and put the time into the bite, the pool or the run. Yeah. I, mean, I think, I think in terms of the gains that you'll see out, at, out on the race course, for sure, you're going to get faster. You know, that's all part of sport, sport performance. There wouldn't Angelo's job as a strength and conditioning coach wouldn't exist if, if you didn't, if that didn't make people, if that didn't make athletes better. Right. So that's a known, a known fact that um, your times are going to get faster. Michael Phelps wrote, wrote about it that, you know, when he, uh, I forget which year when he um, set the record for, you know, however many gold medals uh, that he won and that particular year, he said it was so important just to shave like a couple of seconds off of his time to be to really be hitting it hard in the gym and you take somebody that hasn't strength trained at all and then now they're doing strength training on top of their um on top of whatever their discipline specific training happens to be if they're if they're just a runner if they're a cyclist whatever they happen to be they're going to absolutely 100 get faster my thing is and maybe this is just because i'm an athletic trainer uh and, and i'm always trying to do injury prevention is the gains that you're going to get in terms of making it to the start line and making it to the finish line without being injured. I, I know so many people uh, from the triathlon community that end up having some kind of an injury that is definitely keeping them from uh, performing optimally or even worse, has it to the point where they're, you know, DNFing or not even starting a race. So, um, to me, that's that's the bigger that's the bigger issue. Um, <laughs> I have a I have another friend that's an athletic trainer. He says, anytime he has a triathlete come and, and see him, his first question is, "Well, do you strength training?" And and they're injured, and they say, "No, I've never, never strength trained." He goes, "Well, that's the problem." <laughs> so you know, it, it seems like it's that simple, and, and to us, it's that simple, and. You know, I just want to shake certain people and say, you need this um, so that you can be um, so you can be healthy, participate in the sport that you love. Uh, and also, why not get a little faster while you're at it? Because that's that's why we're that's what that's our all of our goal when we're out there. Yeah, the 
the strength training definitely, you know, has that direct correlation to improved uh, times on on the race course. But I think you make an excellent point about the the longevity aspect, right? It, it allows you to race for many more years as opposed to if you weren't strength training, which in turn is going to allow you to just build that that foundation of of fitness and you know ultimately allow you to to get even faster um over time so i uh kind of read about this stuff fairly often and uh, i appreciate both of your your perspectives um there are some things out there that kind of go against the you know the these sort of foundational lifts right the the squat the lunge um the argument there being well at no point in a triathlon are you moving in a in a vertical plane um you know with you know i don't know 200 pounds on your back so um in the sense of specificity that would be kind of counterintuitive to improving your your running stride, your pedal stroke, uh, your swim stroke, even perhaps. Um, what's your What's your thoughts on on that perspective? Uh, like you said earlier, there's you know there's a, a lot of things that that work for a lot of different people. So I'd just be curious to to hear um, you know with the vast knowledge and experience that you both have just kind of what your, your thoughts on, on that perspective are. One of the, one of the the areas that we have an entire chapter about is, is on core training. And within our core training chapter, we discuss the importance of uh, performing anti-rotation exercises. So we, we go on to explain, you know, the interface of, the trunk on the pelvis as we're, as we're running the interface of the trunk on the pelvis, when we're cycling the interface of the trunk on the pelvis, you know, as we're, uh, as we're swimming. And we talk about how there's this constant rotation of, of the one on the other. And so by performing, and if you're doing, if, if we are rotating, then it would make sense to do an anti-rotation exercise. So, Within all of our supersets, they usually will start with a, uh, a core exercise, um, whether it's a traditional core exercise or whether it's a, um, uh, an anti-rotation exercise. And then many of the sport-specific exercises that we have have an anti-rotation uh, component to them. So if, if there was this concern of, that we weren't being sports specific enough. Uh, I think that should maybe kind of put any of that to rest. So we certainly value having the, the full body strength uh, that we'd be making um, by, by doing squats, lunges, pull, push, pull. Um, but we've definitely, we've definitely covered all of those particular areas. I think too, one thing I'd add to that is, and I, I understand the value of that argument. If we're talking about world-class athletes that have decades of training and they have already perfectly balanced mobile bodies, right? At that point, maybe you want to super focus in and only do the most sport-specific exercises. In reality, overwhelming majority of people in the world are nowhere near 
that example, might only exist in a lab and maybe at the highest levels of Olympic and world, world-class competition. So my, my attitude towards that is, while stuff like horizontal displacement is clearly more quote-unquote sport-specific to a sport like running, until we develop the, the strength and the muscular uh, anatomy to do those kind of movements, I think the basics are really where we should start and get great at those basics and then maybe get progressively more sport-specific. Um, but as far as just being generally strong, and we're not talking about lifting world championship levels of weights in the squat, the bench, and the deadlift, and like that, but in, in my opinion, until we can squat well, hip hinge well, and lunge well, it's going to be really hard to do anything more specific until we develop the right motor patterns and the right musculature to be able to do more advanced movements. So I think we're kind of talking about square one and two in the weight room. And that argument might be more towards somebody who's at like step 10. Yeah. I think both, both sorts of, you know, what I've read about that argument and just listening to both of you here, the the overarching goal is, is the same uh, in the sense of, you know, let's improve our um, muscular skeletal system and have that posture be strong enough to get us through a race, whether it's a, a 5K or, or an ultra marathon. Um, and, you know, like you said earlier, there, there's just a, a, a variety of different ways to, to achieve that. Um, I was just curious about that because, you know, much, much like those goofy headlines, um, you know, there's just so much information um, out there that, you know, I'm sure you both had to kind of pour through to to get to where you are now. So um, just an interesting sort of uh, perspective from from you both. Um, One other thing, and you touched on it a little bit earlier, uh, Angela, I'd like to dive in a a little bit more, um, just kind of along the same lines as what we just discussed. So you have the the big main lifts, uh, big main exercises. And then the the top ten list that that people can kind of pick and choose what they have time for, what um, what they feel like they they need to to work on. Um, one other thing that you hear, you know, running and, and cycling um, a lot when it comes to strength training is um, the single leg exercises. Uh, you know, you've got to be strong on one leg, right? Because the, the pedal stroke is, is essentially, a an isolated movement along with, um, your run stride, right? Very, really don't ever have two feet on the, on the ground at the same time while you're running. So, uh, where do, where do those, uh, those exercises come in and, you know, you personally, which ones are, are your favorites to, to work in for the runners and the cyclists? Great, great question. Uh, the book actually has a chapter comparing the uh, isolateral movements to their more traditional double leg squats and stuff like that, right? So we break it down pretty pretty distinctly throughout the book. But I personally think if, if no, someone's never trained before, I think we should get pretty good at the two foot on the ground, most basic version of the movement, and then progress from there, right? So in our foundation exercise, we have squats and we have lunges, with squats being the, the kind of the, our opinion, the best exercise for total lower extremity development, right? And then lunges being the best exercise for single leg, one leg at a time, muscular development and strength. And I think you can, you can pretty, pretty early on in your training start picking between the two and realize that they're both valuable. 
right? Especially if you're really new to training, squats where you're going to be able to move some weight around, really stress the muscles of the lower extremity and get stronger. And lunge, you're going to be a little bit tougher at first, right? You have to kind of feel your way around a balance, develop the balance of proprioception, do a lunge properly. And I think there's a place for both in a program. I think there's a place for single leg movements and double leg movements with kind of two different goals, right? The single leg being the idea that you said that that's the way we run or cycle is one leg at a time. We have to stay balanced and exert force one leg at a time. But if we're talking about developing total body strength and power and total body muscular hypertrophy, those double you know, two feet on the ground movements become valuable in that sense. So I think they're both good. You just got to kind of know where to you know plug and play with them. And our book gives you a lot of, of, a, of, a, of a guide of how to do that. RJ, you mentioned earlier that a lot of the the supersets that you have in the book uh, start with a, a core exercise. Um, why is the core so important for endurance athletes? Well, it's it's the hub of everything. So, I mean, if you if you look at the way that the anatomy uh, runs and the way that the kinetic chains actually run everything goes through um the core so if you have a weak core um you're definitely setting yourself up for um for failure so um when we say it's 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 amazing too when you look at the different postures out there whether it's a poor posture running a lot of it is related to you know poor core strength and same thing uh when you're dealing with uh a cyclist and you see that they have the poor core uh, and then they're also going to have the um, low back pain almost all the time. So it's, it's definitely the the key area. Um, one of the things that we like to try to, that we, that we spend a little bit of time trying to teach people in the book um, is around the, uh, the fascial lines uh, from anatomy trains. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the, uh, the book anatomy trains, um, but it's something that I always am teaching my students because it basically uh, lays out the different kinetic chains that there are. Um, and there's two really important kinetic chains within the uh, within our anatomy. And it's what's called the functional line, which is pretty much a, a crisscross uh, from one side to the other. And then a, and then the spiral line, because we're constantly doing that uh, that twisting of the, uh, of the trunk on top of the, um, on top of the pelvis. So, um, if, when you look, when you look at those particular kinetic chains, they're all crossing right at that interface of the, of the trunk on the pelvis. And so that's why it's so critical, um, that we're making, that we're making that a solid area. Uh, that area needs to have stability. Um, another thing that we discussed through the book, um, and maybe you're familiar with it, uh, Jim, is uh, the joint by joint concept um, for, um, for, for training. And it pretty much just gives you a nice little uh, quick, easy roadmap uh, for what area of the body should have stability and then what areas should have mobility. Um, and so when you look at joint by joint concept, the low back and, and trunk and core uh, are definitely one of the areas that's always supposed to have stability. And so the more uh, strength exercises that we can do make that good and active, 
uh, that'll be the key. So our goal with putting uh, with putting a core exercise at the beginning of these um, super uh, at the beginning of the supersets, but pretty much just to prime the rest of your system so that hopefully you're going to engage the core when you go and do those other exercises. Uh, full body tension is another is another concept that we discuss. If you're not able to create full body tension, and that includes, you know, creating tension through the core, through those, um, uh, through those other fascial, uh, through those other kinetic chains. Pardon me. Then you're not going to be able to lift as much. So you could even be doing an upper extreme. You might just be doing a, a bench press, and if you can't actually engage the core, then you're not going to have. Um, you're not going to be able to push as much weight as what you could if you were engaging the core. I think one of the biggest misconceptions about the core is just kind of how big it is, right? Does it, it runs from essentially your, your your sternum through down to like your hip flexors, right? Sure. And then, you know, one thing that I'm always hammering home to my students is, you know, your glutes and, and hip abductors are really part of your core because they're around your pelvis. And so it's, it's all of the anatomy that's around your pelvis and your trunk. Um, if that, if that's not, you know, a solid unit, you're, you're going to have troubles and you're definitely going to have a, a recipe for, for getting one of those overused chronic, uh, injuries. Yeah. That's, uh, I'm really glad you said that because a lot of times, um, when runners especially get, get injured, um, the, the common thing that most people say is, oh, well, you know, you did too much too soon. Right. Uh, but it sounds like it, it might be, it could be some truth to that, but perhaps if, if they had a, a stronger core, um, then that would probably stave off some of those, the potential for those overuse injuries. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, they might have, they might have training error. Training error is always something that, that can happen where they might do that. Uh, they might do too much. Um, but if they did have, if they did have the, you know, the basic strength there and they were actually recruiting the, the muscles to, to help to stabilize um, that particular area and region, then they should actually not be injured and, and should have success. Cool. Um, we're running up, uh, on an hour here. I want, I want to be respectful of, of both of your time. Um, anything I didn't ask you about that, um, about the book or about strength training in general that, that you feel is, is worthwhile to, to add to the discussion before we wrap it up here? No, I think we covered just about everything. Um, again, it, it applies to pretty much all endurance athletes, whether you're, you're a gym rat like me and RJ or brand new to the gym, I uh, trying to give you a place to start, kind of map out a year of training, and then kind of kind of tell you how to progress through that year in a way that will get you stronger and faster and less injury prone by the end of the year, and then let you start year two of strength training at a better place and making progress as your hopefully decades long endurance career progresses. Yeah, and in terms of you know what's involved in the book, there's over sixty four uh, workout templates. So there's an awful lot of uh, different workout templates. As we as we mentioned, it it does uh, it does go through a periodization cycle. So with the off season, 
there's uh, there's going to be four templates that we're giving people uh, regard for each of the different disciplines. So it would be specific to a cyclist. They're going to have four. Um, the runner's going to have four, et cetera. Um, and then we also, you know, so off season, build and base, peak mileage, and then also uh, once you get to your your taper. So there's a lot of there's a lot of opportunity in there for people. And as we always like to say, if you're, if you're the cyclist, it's not necessarily wrong to dip in and, and see what the, uh, see what the runners are actually doing because some of those exercises certainly might benefit you. Right. The other thing is you might be a runner right now, but your future might hold some cycling, some swimming, some triathlon. So it's kind of a good place to start for just about everybody. The only thing I'd like to add too, before we wrap up, yeah, the book is going to be out November 30th in the United States. It's out over in Europe now. But to follow uh, me and RJ and to follow you know, some of the, the stuff going on with the book on Instagram or at finish underscore strong underscore book. And you can find out more about us. Uh, we'll post up links to this podcast when this drops and just kind of kind of be ready for when the book comes out in November and hit the ground running when you can actually hold it in your hands. Awesome. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll definitely share uh, links to that in the uh, notes for the episode. And just a, a personal anecdote, you know, to to your point, you know, the the strength of kind of translating across the the gamut of whatever you want to do physically, um, developing that that muscle and strength uh, really does allow you to kind of dip into one event. Uh, one weekend, dip into something else totally different the, the following weekend and kind of experience all of these things once you, you do build that, that base of strength uh, to kind of compete in, in endurance sports and, and do it in a healthy way. Awesome, guys. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I really appreciate it. The book is Finish Strong, Resistance Training for Endurance Athletes. The authors are RJ Burgers and Angelo Gingerelli. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Jim, thanks again for having us. Thank you, Jim. Much appreciated. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sense Fitness Podcast. Just so you know, right now we're looking for five women who want to lose up to 20 pounds in the next 12 weeks while drinking wine and eating whatever they want. If that's you, visit our website, sensefitness.com to learn more. That's S-E-N-S fitness.com.